0: This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense
1: out of our world's toughest business challenges.
2: Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Reilly. And I'm Roberta
1: Fissaro.
3: You have to look at tech as a first order topic in strategy. And you also have to think about it as a creative process. How do we mix and remix these technology trends? How do we bring their combinations and permutations to life in new forms that then create unique and differentiated strategies that serve customers and serve our societies better and better?
2: That's
1: McKinsey partner, Roger Roberts. He joins me and McKinsey partner, Michael Chewy, to discuss three important technology trends that executives need to pay attention to right now.
2: After, we'll hear from McKinsey partner Brian Rolfes, who came to McKinsey firmly in the closet. But a chance meeting with a client outside the office showed him that authenticity can create bonds.
1: Michael, Roger, thanks so much for joining the podcast today.
3: It's great to be here. Excited to join you.
1: We're here today to talk about the McKinsey Report on Technology Trends. We don't have time to talk about all 14 that are noted in the report, but we thought we would focus in on a couple that are perhaps familiar to listeners, and then maybe one that's not so much. I wanted to start with Applied AI. Michael, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what's changed with Applied AI.
0: In the recent years, the one thing that we know has really changed is you know the applications of artificial intelligence really are starting to have impact on the business. I actually think that the definition is not particularly clear, and that's okay. Uh, you know I sometimes have described it as analytics you know turned up to eleven, uh, but it is this you know, ability for increasingly these systems to be able to do the sorts of things that people used to do cognitively and so you know, we've been serving thousands of executives over the past few years and their use of AI. And in applied AI, we do see adoption continuing to increase. But there are a number of frontiers that are happening as well, not just the adoption frontier, but the types of technologies which are moving from the lab into business is also moving over time. And that's one of the reasons we we identify this as one of the 14 disruptive technology trends that is important right now.
1: And, Roger, who is using applied AI the most? Are Are there particular industries where we're seeing spikes or particular applications that make the most sense in certain industries?
3: Well, quite frankly, what we find is most exciting about this trend is that it does touch truly every industry. So, while there may be a few that are further ahead in building their own capabilities, right? I think about financial services institutions, or some of the larger media and consumer tech players, we absolutely see the opportunity expanding rapidly across all sector boundaries. And part of that is because it's so widely applicable to many different kinds of data types. As we've seen over the last few years, AI has expanded rapidly from being focused on more quantitative or structured data, uh, maybe textual data, but very rapidly into spoken audio, imagery, all forms of video, and not just now for classification of those and recognition, but also really moving toward understanding, right? Question answering and uh, language understanding, for example.
1: Can you provide an example of a typical use case or you know, maybe a company or an, an industry where AI is now rising to the fore even more so than a several years back?
3: Well, what could seem simple but is challenging in practice is the, the use of AI to really uh, support customer care. So the notion of customer service agents that can be truly responsive to queries, whether those be in the form of chatbots on websites or through audio and spoken language input, or even supporting a human agent in the midst of a conversation to bring her the right information at the right time to support that customer. Understanding and responding to conversation, understanding even the, the customer's uh, mindset or the nature of their concern, whether they're happy, sad, angry, worried, can actually now be recognized and understood in ways that allow for a better and more adaptive customer service experience.
1: Can you describe a little more about how AI is able to sense and interpret emotion?
3: When we think about language understanding, the first step is, in a conversation, understanding the words and translating meanings. But what has happened is that learning models can also make inferences about the other non-semantic aspects right the the emotions that are built into a conversation and that might mean that they could understand that someone is excited that someone is angry that someone is confused or upset and convey that information to the customer care agent who is picking up the call and When that agent maybe transfers the call to a second agent to escalate a problem, that information could also go along with it. So there are lots of different kinds of uses there. But yes, it's starting to become quite possible to make strong and accurate inferences about the emotional state of people in conversation and that you know used in the right way can allow for better and more effective service
0: here's another example where moving from the science you know into the into the workplace has happened as well there's an artificial intelligence technology called reinforcement learning which is you know famously been used mostly in the early years to demonstrate the ability to learn computer games video games but what we're starting to see is that RL, or reinforcement learning, is now being used in business. You know, there's, there's some videos online about using RL in order to improve uh, the design of boats used in America's Cup. Turns out the, the team won. Um, but that's an R&D application. And if you think of all of the applications where you need to do some sort of optimization in R&D, uh, you know, whether it's uh, improving the airflow through a computer enclosure, and we also see reinforcement learning used in order to help train robots as well, which previously you sort of had to you know, instruct a robot exactly where to move the hand and how to move the arm. And now these systems now are starting to learn how to do it in sort of a game-like way.
1: Roger and Michael, can you share an example of a company that solved a problem using applied AI?
3: I'll talk about a client that was trying to figure out how to best Uh, fulfill orders during the holiday shipping crunch in 2021. They had used typical rules-based algorithms that pointed pickers to places and had a queue of orders that they worked. And they realized that that was not the most optimal way of moving people through a warehouse, especially a lot of people who were in in many cases temporary workers who'd only signed on to help with the holiday peak. And so they designed an application that allowed for waves of workers to move through and use AI to guide that set of workers to the best pattern so they wouldn't bump into each other, yet they could fill their orders faster and more accurately than they ever had before. And it really showed dramatic improvements in productivity.
0: Let me give another example, and it's a bit of a parable. So, you know, this is a consumer products uh, company, and forecasts are incredibly important for consumer products companies. You know, it, de- it, it it will determine how much you're going to manufacture. It's going to determine how you're going to uh, prepare your supply chain, uh, how you're going to prepare your logistics. Uh, for an upcoming season um and again they used math before right they used analytics uh, for forecasting uh, but then started to use you know machine learning in order to try to improve that forecast um truthfully the accuracy of the forecast improved by a few percentage points but the important thing is you know for folks who are listening right and you think about your own forecastings you know would you like to have a few more percentage points Absolutely, because that is a huge driver of business performance. You know Roger talked about stockouts for instance, right I mean it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really bad thing. And so again, this the parable part of it here is that you know if you think about AI as not some magical thing where you know, the machine comes and it's this you know data from Star Trek, but it, it is just improving your performance a little bit in your analytics, there are lots of places in the business where that is a really material change and so again you know sometimes it's 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 you know don't get don't get deceived by the 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 flash you know it is the you don't want to say the boring parts of business right is it exciting to see business performance increase but it doesn't have to be this amazing you know you know this 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 humanoid who shows up to your board meeting it is oftentimes the core of your business the most important places where value gets created where these technologies can often have the most impact
1: what are some of the concerns or things that uh, executives, companies should be thinking about when it comes to applied AI?
0: There's a lot. <laughs> Let me start with one, right? Which, is a, which I, I think is a, an important one for people to think about. You know, I, as part of artificial intelligence, a lot of people uh, talk about machine learning. They're roughly synonymous. Um, but I actually find the term machine learning to be slightly um, misleading because it's really not machine learning, but it really is machine training. Uh, and what we do with these models, these systems, is use data in order to train the model. Uh, and one of the most important things is understanding your data. Because, again, if your data has problems, whether it's data quality or, you know, bias, that will affect the model that gets trained. Um, and so, you know, take it, for example, the use of AI in order to read resumes. And you might say, look, we're just going to train our ML model based on who's been successful in our organization previously, because that should be a good predictor for who will be successful in the future. Well, if it turns out that people have been successful in your organization previously, let's say that it was disproportionately male, then you might end up training a a model which disproportionately preferences male candidates.
1: I want to shift to another one of the technology trends that we covered in the report. This one around um, cloud and edge computing. I'm curious, what's the difference between cloud and edge, or what's the relationship? How do they complement one another, cloud and edge computing?
3: I think we're recognizing that, that incredible power of shared computing resources needs to be connected to actuators, let's say, that are sitting close to the action, close as in inside the retail store or inside the warehouse, because data that's being captured in real time may need to be acted on in real time. And also the round trip of data, moving significant amounts of data back only to make small decisions can uh, get expensive, both expensive in terms of how much bandwidth it consumes in your networks But also expensive in time, right? And what a a technologist would call latency, right? The round trip time between request and response. And so as we think about that, we're getting a better understanding of what should happen at the edge and what should happen in the cloud. And what's exciting is that it's not an either or trade off, really, it's a both and. So now we look at this and we say, we want to make our edge computing as fast and furious as our cloud computing. And we want to be able to bring new ideas, new capabilities from concept to creation as fast at the edge as we can in the cloud. And that to me is why we think about this as cloud plus edge, not cloud or edge.
1: Can you provide an example of say a retailer or a telecom company that would get some benefit from this concentration on the combination of cloud and edge.
3: If I think about a retailer, one kind of data that can be captured with high fidelity, but is very high volume as well would be video tracking of retail shelves during the day. So if I'm in a store, let's say it's a grocery store, I'm tracking what's being bought on aisle three, and I see that cereal boxes are moving off those shelves. With my video streams, I can recognize stockouts. And I don't need to send the entirety of that video back up to the cloud. What I do need to do is send a simple data element that says wow, we've got a stock out in Captain Crunch on aisle three. Now, when I do that, it can trigger uh, replenishment action, whether that's from the back room of the store or it might be more Captain Crunch needs to go on the truck and we get it overnight. And as a result, those kinds of closed loop decision-making applications can keep our shelves fuller faster, but they can also reduce the burden of, of stock taking at the end of the day, right? When waiting till the store is closed before I even know where my stockouts are.
1: That's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. So the benefit is clear. What are the potential risks for companies that are thinking about, again, this combination of cloud and edge computing?
3: I would say it's not so much a risk, but a, but a, a barrier is making sure that you have the network in place to support this, right? Because it does mean that you have to have network reliability between my edge locations and my cloud data centers. And oftentimes those are quite physically separated and there's a lot of network hops in between. So making sure that network is solid, reliable, and fast. A second is making sure that my in store or my edge architecture is built for agility, right? A lot of systems that were built in a prior generation were built with the expectation that they needed to run on their own and never be updated unless there was a major software release. And what we're now seeing is we'd love to deliver lots of small, fast changes into those systems.
1: I would imagine that because there are fewer and or faster hops, that security becomes less of an issue. Is that true or is that a bad assumption on my part?
3: Not necessarily, Roberta. I would say security remains you know, always a concern. The more we have a Attack surface area, right through systems that are exposed externally, the more we'll have new and evolving risks. So, I'm not sure we really change our security profile here. We might allow for better and tighter monitoring, though, because I can have my in store or in warehouse systems managed and monitored on a more Uh, granular level. And I can make sure that that information's being relayed into my security ops center and other monitoring and event management tools uh, all the time.
1: Michael, I don't know if you have more to add on the cloud edge topic.
3: The only other thing I'd
0: observe is I think, understandably, companies and executives have been concerned about security. You know, when you're taking it off of your premises and putting it somewhere out there in some data center that you don't own i think more and more executives are asking themselves you know is my cybersecurity staff however many people that i have going to be more capable than uh, you know a a cloud provider who is hiring the best people in the world and has a giant effort against this capability because in fact there is a you know not only technical capability but you have people capability uh you know trying to 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 um make sure that those security issues are well managed
1: makes sense and it sounds exciting now i want to shift over to a topic that's also covered in the report on the future of bioengineering i know that i personally know less about this so michael i wonder if you could uh, define what we're talking about when we talk about bioengineering. What are the technologies that make up this category of technology?
0: When we talk about the future of bioengineering, and you know, we also had a, uh, another report that predated it called the bio revolution. what we're actually thinking about is the combination, the convergence of a set of innovations and inventions in biology. So there are things like CRISPR. It's a roughly you know, a way that you can start to edit genetic code or the ability to you know, scan a human genome or any organism's genome relatively quickly and relatively cheaply with a set of innovations in information technology. Uh, people, again, we've heard of the word genomics, uh, but there are a whole bunch of other molecules other than DNA and RNA, right? So you have proteomics, looking at proteins, for instance, lipidomics, looking at lipids. You know, you, There are a bunch of things that you can do at the molecular level. You can level that up to actually cells and organisms. And you know, uh, many of us are aware of the climate implications of particularly livestock because cows are flatulent amongst other things, right? And they eat a lot and you need a lot of water and all those sorts of things. But now people are starting to grow meat from cells in a lab. They call it cultured meat. That's an entire set of alternative proteins, which again has implications not only for you know health and taste, but also for, for a climate. Um, so those are some of the technologies that we're talking about when we talk about the future of bioengineering
1: what's the uptake been for bioengineering technologies
0: what i'd say is it varies greatly by the different industries or areas of application so there are places of the economy you know largely call it life sciences um, pharma healthcare uh, you know the cutting edge of healthcare where literally we've seen things like mrna vaccines we've talked about it as a a vaccine against covid but now people are talking about we could potentially vaccinate against other diseases which have been challenging for us before. RSV, for instance, a lot of us who have kids are, are suffering through that type of thing. But cancer, I mean, you can imagine a vaccine for certain types of cancer. It turns out that in some cases, cancer is you know caused by infectious disease, but that is changing the game, right? So certainly in the life sciences health field, um, it's quite advanced, but we also found applications, for instance, in consumer products. Uh, imagine putting on a, a skin cream so that you wouldn't have to shave. Uh, we also look at materials of various types, whether it's you know energy, but you know less. You know, there was a big biofuels trend a few years ago. It turns out it's very difficult to compete with an industry that's been around for a hundred years and is really optimized very well. But if you start to look at specialty materials, you know even here in the Bay Area, uh, I think there. Are, there, at last count, were about three different startups creating artificial spider silk for apparel. Right, so just you know, imagine what what what's possible there. We see it, you know, different types of biomaterials being that are stronger, more sustainable, uh, and we're seeing more and more of that happen as well.
1: What are some of the potential concerns and risks associated with the deployment of you know bioengineering technology? What what could prevent companies from moving forward? with this group of technologies?
0: When you're talking about the building blocks of life, um, it is something that concerns people. Uh, and so there are a lot of different things that, that uh, companies uh, policymakers are are thinking about. Um, well, take for example, the fact, you know, there's, there's the old saying, I think from Jurassic park, you know, life finds a way what it requires is a deep understanding of what's actually possible, and not possible, because we've all also heard, um, you know, concerns about the fact um, you know, will an mRNA vaccine change my descendants? And it doesn't actually work that way. Even though it is genetic material, that's not how the science works. Um, So I think a deep understanding of how the science works and then couple that with appropriate policy uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, But, you know, there are other, you know, other questions as well. You know, what's patentable, for instance? Um, You know, there's been disputes about that. Um, You know, how do you think about cross-border questions? There are genetically modified organisms, organisms and genetically engineered organisms. The second are uh, using genes which already exist in nature. And so there are a lot of subtleties here, uh, particularly on the regulatory side as well.
1: Do we need new types of talent in any of these areas in order for there to be more adoption? Are are we lacking in cloud edge computing talent? Are Are we lacking in any of these areas?
0: I think we've experienced and we've seen organizations report that oftentimes talent is a real limiter. Now that said, you know, and you know, Roger, we, we can talk about this more, right? I mean, one of the p- potential ways to address that is to create tools that allow people to be more productive. That you know, so that people aren't spending as much time, you know, doing data plumbing because actually you can automate data pipelines. That's actually part of a trend that we've described as industrializing ML. But we do need more. And by the way, because these trends are related, you know, I described. The future of bioengineering is a combination of biological innovation and technology innovation. You need AI people, you need data engineers in order to do the future of bioengineering.
3: I'd also point out that sometimes we think of talent as people who graduate with degrees in X. I think going forward, we are all going to have to be lifelong learners and explorers of new domains and bring these cross-connections uh, of fields together, even mid-career, even late in our careers, to learn about the possibilities that can be unlocked here.
0: But I think this idea of being able to combine different trends in order, you know, as Roger talked about, to create creative solutions is actually what's most powerful. It's very rare that you'll actually just, I'll just use this one trend and I'll solve the entire problem. Usually I have to bring a number of things together, and, and that's really fun to do.
1: What excites you most about either the three technology trends we've discussed or any of the others in the report, frankly? What excites you or where do you see the most possibility?
3: Roberta, I am a techno-optimist by nature, and I think the reality here is that tech is stepping to the forefront. It's stepping to the forefront of how we think about strategies, and so maybe 15, 20 years ago, when I was earlier in my career in McKinsey, I might have thought we set our business strategy, we think about technology, and then we determine how we're going to execute our strategy. But tech is a way to execute stuff. Now, tech is what is bringing the new building blocks, the new possibilities into the game board. And so you have to look at tech as a first order topic in strategy. And you also have to think about it as a creative process. How do we mix and remix these technology trends? How do we bring their combinations and permutations to life in new forms that then create unique and differentiated strategies that serve customers and serve our societies better and better? This has been a fantastic
1: discussion, so I'm sorry to let you go here. Roger, Michael, thanks so much for joining the
2: podcast.
3: Thanks, Roberta. It's been great to be here. It was a pleasure, Roberta.
2: As critical as data is to serving our societies, it might lack human touch. Authenticity and empathy also play essential roles in making our world a better place. And our next story is full of both, as told by partner Brian Rolfes.
4: The story I'd like to share comes out of my very first study at McKinsey. It goes all the way back to 1995. And what you need to know is I didn't join McKinsey out. I was in the closet when I joined the firm. And I did that because I mistakenly thought McKinsey was this conservative institution where I couldn't be who I wanted to be authentically myself. Good news is within a couple months, I discovered that I could be who I wanted to be here. I could be out, and I was. But for that first study, I wasn't out. And so I was serving a big Canadian bank. And my boyfriend Brad and I had recently moved to Toronto. We found ourselves on a Saturday walking down the street in the gay area here in Toronto, uh, and we were holding hands. And of course, who is approaching us on the sidewalk? But the senior client, the very, very senior client, senior executive on this bank study that I'm on, uh, from the bank, and his name is Jim. Jim's approaching me, so I throw Brad's hand aside, my boyfriend's hand aside. And Jim says, you're on that study, the McKinsey study, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I'm Brian, one of the you know, brand new associate. Nice, nice to meet you. And Jim says, oh, well, you know, this is this is my boyfriend, Alberto. And I said, oh, uh, well, uh, this is my boyfriend, Brad. And that immediately created a, a bond and a relationship uh, between Jim and I that then lasted five or six years. As it turns out at the time, Jim wasn't out at the bank, and I, as I said, wasn't out at McKinsey. I came out very quickly uh, within a month or two at McKinsey, uh, helped create the LGBTQ plus affinity group here at McKinsey along with others uh, at that time. And a few years later, Jim did the same thing at his bank, but it created this bond uh, that has lasted through the years. Jim and I are uh, continue to be friends today. But to me, the learning from that first study was, one, surprisingly, uh, even as a gay man, don't assume others necessarily are straight. You'd think that would be self-evident, but it wasn't. And then the second, the second thing I learned was that there can be actually a bit of a superpower in, in terms of being gay and meeting other people who are LGBTQ plus identified because it creates that bond and that relationship. That relationship has lasted this very day.
2: Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Raheli. And
1: I'm Roberta Fassaro.
2: Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly.
1: And check out the McKinsey Insights app, where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily.
2: And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two
1: weeks.